You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi and welcome to the Drive Time Show here at the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Salman. And as always, we have two topics for you that we would like to discuss and we would be very happy if you join the discussion and give us your point of view on the topics that we are discussing today. You can also ask us questions um, in regards to the Islamic um, take on on these things and we will, inshallah, give you the Islamic perspective on things. If you would like to get involved, um, please do call us on 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. Or you can also find us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. That is at Voice of Islam UK. As you know, um, here at the Voice of Islam Radio, we always discuss two topics and we try to look um, at the topic from various angles, from um, the worldly angle as well as from the Islamic side of things. So the first topic that we've got for you today is hijab. And uh, we're trying to find out whether the hijab is a barrier, whether the hijab stops us from progressing, stops um, the Muslim ladies from uh, progressing in life is that really holding them back or is it something that makes them feel safe is the hijab something that is a choice or is it something that um, is a sign of oppression really so that's sort of the uh, first topic that we're discussing and then in the second hour we will be discussing serving humanity and how serving humanity is a form of worship of Allah the Almighty. But as I said, um, starting off, we'll be talking about hijab. Now, the hijab is probably one of the first um, things that comes to the minds of many when they hear the word Islam. Um, and there are many notions and misunderstandings that revolve around the topic of of modesty, questions for its validity, importance, and um, the, the, the relevance really arise in the hearts of many. Many also question what status women hold in Islam. As I said, because the hijab is seen as a sign of oppression, at times it really questions the status of a woman within an Islamic society, within the religion of Islam. And if they are empowered or are they maybe inferior. So please do join us um, on our phone number 0208-687-7878 and our socials at Wasuf Islam UK. Now, <clears throat> the Holy Quran states that say to the believing men that they restrain their looks and guard their private parts that is purer for them. And say to the believing women that they restrain their looks and guard their private parts 
Now, this in itself really refutes the argument that modesty and chastity is left to the women and men, men are, are really left roaming free. But this, is, this is not the case within the Islamic society. Islam is a very precautionary religion where it does say to the men to lower their gaze, putting the first responsibility of modesty on their shoulders. It also shares this responsibility to women that in addition, the women should cover themselves up. And that, I mean, that, that rule really applies across the board. It is also mentioned that when it comes to, to the hududullah, to the limitations that have been placed upon us Muslims, that we should try to stay away from those limitations as, as much as possible. So even within the, the, the measure of allowed things, we, we, we need to stay away. So this is not just a case when it comes to chastity, but really in, in all um, perspectives of life. So God has wisdom behind putting the responsibility on both of men and women about maintaining chastity. While God does command men to lower their gaze, women cannot be guaranteed safety based solely on that. As um, worldly events prove that men don't always lower their gaze, so to further ensure their safety, women are told to cover themselves so they don't have to suffer the mental anguish of being bothered by men. So we can't, uh, we, we, we can't just um, give this instruction to the men that they have to guard um, their chastity and lower their gaze and just rely on that. So both, obviously, uh, parts of society have to play their, their, their part in this. Explaining the um, equal status and responsibilities between men and women, which is shared in Islam, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, states, First, it is the men who are commanded to practice restraining their gaze. They should restrain their eyes from gawking at anything prohibited, and they should not unnecessarily stare at women who are non-mehram. So, which um, you are not. So, the Holy Quran has basically mentioned that there are certain relationships uh, in 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 which women don't have to fully cover up, whereas in others um, they have to cover up. So, the non-mehram are, are are the men uh, where a woman should be covered fully. So whenever one walks about uh, with his eyes wide open, and this is again what the Caliph states, whenever one walks about with his eyes wide open and unrestrained, the eyes will necessarily follow others out of curiosity. This is why the Holy Quran commands that one should walk with a lowered gaze. Now, a, a, a wandering and, and curious gaze towards the opposite gender is often the first and most tempting steps, which pushes us down the slippery slope of evil and immoralities, often leading to more trouble for women than men. This and many other verses from the Holy Quran proves that maintaining modesty and chastity between men and women is indeed a commandment Islam has. So, I mean, if, if we look at this, 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 this whole thing from... A, a worldly perspective, what we see is that if this very instructions towards men as well as women was followed, um, it would make life so much easier. It would mean that the, the incidents that we are facing on a daily basis 
would decrease. And again, um, it, it should be very, very clear that in no instance can we blame the victim for for being pursued, for, for being stalked or, or, or God knows what. But we all have to guard ourselves at the end of the day. The, 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 the example really is if, if, I, if I am walking around in, in, a, um, in a area where crime is very common and I, and, 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 and I just go about uh, with a Rolex watch on, on my wrist, um, at the end of the day, I'd be the one responsible for, for guarding it, right? So when it comes to things such as chastity, we both have to play our parts. We cannot just expect um, men to be the ones that are taking the sort of preventive measures. It, it really has to happen from both sides. But again, um, this is not something that uh, is only um, on the women. Rather, it is something that has to be happening from both ends so that we can make sure that our society flourishes and that women feel safe and they have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. Now, further explaining the the importance of modesty in society, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said, verily modesty and faith are related to each other. When one of them is taken away, the other is also taken away. So we should really think about this in, 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 in more detail and uh, we will discuss this further. But we now have on the line with us Samreen Shiraz. Um, she is a second year student at John Hopkins University, majoring in molecular and cellular biology. Samreen, thank you very much for joining us. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Samreen, um, are you with us? Yes, Assalamu Jazakallah for, for, for being with us. Thank you very much. Um, so, um, as you know, we, we are discussing the, the hijab and whether that is holding back women uh, within Islam or is this something maybe that, that, that provides them some, some, some sort of measure of safety, really. Um, how, how long have you been wearing the hijab? Um, actually, I have been wearing hijab since I was in fifth grade, I want to say. Um, and since then, I started just you know, a loose scarf around my neck. Um, and then started, slowly started graduating. Um, and I've been doing this since then. And if you mind sharing, uh, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners, which country are you living in and what is it that you do? Um, I am from the United States, Jamaat. Um, I'm a student, as you mentioned. I'm a secondary um, undergrad in biology. Okay, okay, right. So, I mean, that, that obviously uh, gives um, sort of relevance to, to, to this whole thing, uh, especially uh, mm -hmm. because we are here in the West. So, so many of our listeners will be able to relate to you. So, what are some of the challenges of wearing the hijab in, in the Western world? I think definitely we have to uphold ourselves where um, our Islamic teachings are not as common as our Eastern societies. Um Definitely looks of um, worriedness, also um, some um, concerns that people have regarding hijab and how women are treated in Islam. I think just upholding your values in this society is really important. 
Um, personally, I've always been proud of how I present myself when I go outside. Um, and people always had very, various questions to ask um, if I was forced to wear it, um, if I chose this to wear it by myself or by my parents. And I think really knowing and understanding the fundamentals of your faith um, helped me um, realize um, that, it, that this is something I want to make part of my life. Um, and I continue to do so with prayers. Um, and I think Allah Ta'ala has helped me a lot with that as well. <laughs> so what pros do you feel you have as a hijab-observing woman? I think I feel definitely way more confident about myself when I go out in public. Um, people know exactly what faith I belong to, what are my values. Um, I think I would like to share uh, a small incident. Um, I um, worked at a summer internship this summer, um, and I would go to the cafeteria every once in a while, and there was a man there uh, working, and he would always say, super loud, regardless of how many people were there. Um, and I felt really, really empowered that he knew I was Muslim and he would always make sure that he says salam to me. Mm. Um, even though I didn't know who he was, he didn't know who I was. Mm. And I think that really um, makes me feel proud and also confident in my faith that I am presenting the face of Islam. Um, that people know that, oh, she's a Muslim by the way she dresses or that she has a hijab on and a coat on. And I think that is really empowering for us women. Um, also, I think comparing ourselves to the modern society I feel much more protected um, by the way I dress up in modesty um, compared to, unfortunately, most of our women um, in the Western society um, who are falling in the place of um, worldliness and the gaze of men. I think that is really, further really safeguards us from um, the evil of the world as well. Mm-hmm. Most certainly, most certainly. Um do you do you believe you've ever been treated differently as a student because of wearing the hijab? I think in a positive manner, yes. Um, most of the time, um, my teachers or my fellow students were being were more respectful towards me than they were to other students. Sometimes, um, especially when it came to male teachers and they were shaking hands or hugging the other students, um, they would always ask me before or. Um, I would tell them that I don't shake hands or hug, um, and they would be very respectful. Um, and they would make sure that they communicate this further to other people as well. Um, especially like when I met new people, my friends would interview me and be like, oh, she doesn't shake hands or, you know, hug the opposite gender. So don't try to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think in, in that sense, it was a positive um, treatment I saw from people. Um, and I think even now, people generally respect whenever I am there, um, if they are some male, mostly, most of them would um, like distance themselves from me um, just out of respect. And I think that is beautiful that I don't have to even say anything um, and they understand the values that I'm holding. So what you're saying is that the hijab essentially um, speaks for itself. And um, so in, in, in many situations where it could potentially become awkward, um, the hijab is has a message within itself for for the other person yes yes exactly mm-hmm. and i think that is beautiful because you you're holding your own values through this hijab and um that makes you really confident about yourself 
um, as well as your position in that situation as well. I think in many many cases, people have um, often commented that I do seem very um, confident um, when I am wearing hijab and when I am talking in public. Um, and I think that I don't really try to do it, but it just comes out um, to them because I am positive towards what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know exactly why I'm doing it too. And I think just knowing that factor that why I'm doing it, why am I doing this and what value I hold um, is really important, especially for our young women as well. Just knowing why you're doing this or what it holds, what hijab holds for you is really precious. <laughs> Most certainly. Um, what, one last question I have before we um, mm-hmm. um, end this conversation with you today. Um, let's say there are, there are some sisters out there that um, are facing some sort of issues or, or some sort of, of uh, mockery um, within their schools or universities or at the place of work. Would you have some advice for them how they can help the situation? Yes, I think most certainly um, pray a lot. Um, I, I mean, I know I have heard people who have had bad experiences. Um, but also just be confident in what you're doing. Don't don't change yourself for how people are um, treating you. You could tell them. You can have, you can have a conversation with them. Let them know why you're doing this, um, what it holds for you. And Islam is such a beautiful religion. Mm-hmm. Everything is based on logic and reason. And it has been explained beautifully um, in Ahadith, in Quran, uh, in the literature of, literature of the Quran Messiah. I think if you really start reading them and explaining that to people, it becomes really um, um, easy to negotiate through life in this scenario as well. Um, and I think it's just remaining confident in yourself. Um, for example, um, I remember when I was the only one in our school who wore a hijab. There were Muslim students, but they would not uh, wear a hijab because they were um, afraid of getting bullied or just being left behind in the modern society. And I think that really left an impact on me that, oh, should I even do this? Um, however, I continued wearing a hijab. I was always scared um, that people are going to question me or look at me differently. Mm-hmm. But I think with constant prayers and confidence, I was able to change the minds of even those girls. Um, and soon enough, I was not the only one wearing a hijab in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, really powerful emotions for me. And I think that is what has led me to this day, to continue wearing hijab and feeling powerful as what I present myself to be. So I think definitely just knowing why you're doing it and what importance it holds for you mm-hmm. um, as an individual is, is a very key point to understand. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, um, Samreen Shiraz, for, for being with us today. And I, I, I wish you all the very best in your studies and as, as well as in your future. Jazakallah for being with us. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call us if you want to get involved in our um, discussion today as we are discussing the importance of hijab and whether hijab is something that's holding you back or is it maybe um, maybe a blessing and as we were just speaking with um, Sister Samreen who had joined us from the USA it seems like it is nothing but a blessing and it is not holding her back at all rather it is becoming something that um, makes her more confident um, when she's speaking publicly and also is helping her avoid many 
potential awkward situations. So, very pro-hijab by the grace of Allah. And obviously, it has to be because it is an injunction of Allah the Almighty. So, before we went to uh, speak with Sister Samreen, we were discussing the saying, the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, he stated that verily, modesty and faith are related to each other. When one of them is taken away, the other is also taken away. Now, of course, uh, we just, um, similar to all uh, teachings of religion, we have to put forth our best efforts to maintain our faith. However, modesty and chastity is given special importance to keep your faith up. Now, when one can try very hard to be um, the best version of themselves and keep doors to things like arrogance, hate and, and other vices um, out of their lives. However, modesty is the one door that it, if it is left open, other vices are bound to sneak in and compromise our faith. So, I mean, and that is really the, the case with, with, with many such vices. Um, we have the example um, of this one companion of the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who came to ask him to um, explain to him one um, sin or vice that he could leave so that all of other, or all the other vices in, in, in his life in sort of go away. And the Prophet told him to, to stop lying. And as soon as he stopped that, Eventually, everything else is followed. And that, that is really the, the case when we look at uh, it from a spiritual point of view, that there are many sins that we are committing. But if we decide to to get rid of one, Allah the Almighty causes a, a sort of a ripple effect, really. And we start getting rid of all the other things as well, because we then obviously want to become a better version of ourselves. Now, we have established um, the requirements and necessity of modesty in the Islamic faith and um, in order to safeguard our faith. However, maintaining modesty and chastity also stops many from falling prey to our weak desires. Now, following our human desires often leads to the destruction of one's spirituality. And that is really the, the point here. Um, at the end of the day, the purpose of our lives is to worship Allah the Almighty and to become a valuable asset to society, to the human beings around us um, so that we can serve the community instead of becoming part of the problem. And guarding our modesty and chastity and making sure that those around us are also in a safe environment and that those around us are also following the commandments of Allah the Almighty is a massive, massive step towards um, um, towards guarding the, 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 uh, towards the safeguarding of society and our, our, our neighbors and the people around us and then obviously also our coming generations. Um, we now have with us on uh, the line our next guest caller, which is Ansa Rahmatullah. She moved to the USA in the 1970s 
Um, though she was a medical student prior to her move to the USA, she started a different route in the USA. She sought education through vocational schools as well as teaching Asian history in schools. And now she serves in the community's women's auxiliary as well as um, helping fund women's education. Uh, Ansa Rahmatullah, thank you very much for being with us. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Um, Jazakallah, thank you very much for taking all your time for uh, to be with us today. Um, how has your experience been living in the USA as a covering Muslim woman in times where Muslims lacked representation? Um, as I told in my notes that I came here in 1978 and at that time actually there were very few women who covered their heads here. Hmm. It's much different now, you know, 45 years later. But, um, and I used to wear a shalwar kameez, which was my traditional dress. And that was, I mean, we were in New Jersey and New York area. I would be the only one. But honest to God, in all these years, I have never once have had an incident where somebody has, you know, uh, come up to me or said something nasty. Actually, it has been the opposite. They would always appreciate, oh, I love the color, I love the dress, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, my experience personally um, has been a good experience. I was very young. I was a teenager when I came here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all I knew, you know. This was the first time out of my own country and family. So you just wore what you wore all the time there. Um, and all these years later, I have noticed the change that wherever I go, uh, you see more hijabi women. Uh, so it's much easier to do it now, but even then, I actually had no difficulty. Amazing. Um, now, that's obviously, you were just mentioning that, that you came to the USA in 1978, if, if I didn't get that wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how did the experience of, um, of, of, of being a covering Muslim woman change um, after um, the notion of Muslims being bad or, or violent rose in the West. Right. Uh, very few people in those days, you know, the only Muslims they associated was, you know, through the Hollywood movies, the Shias and this and that. So to them, that was the only Muslim or so to speak. Hmm. So even from Pakistan, you know, they didn't realize what is Pakistan, India, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were all lumped together. But in West Coast, again, we saw saris and everything as well. So Islam, and I think it drastically changed after 9-11, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, where they became more conscious of it. And I thought I would have a backlash. Um, So my father-in-law was very strict about observing the further. I even told me and my girls and nieces, it's okay if you don't cover your head because he was afraid for us, you know, hmm. because the climate was such. Hmm. Um, my children were in school, but the teachers called me and told me, uh, we were the girls. I have daughters. And if the kids, you know, because hmm. that's the first time the kids think, oh, these girls are different, you know. Hmm. So it did change. And you did. They did get bullied a few times. But these girls were born and raised here, so they could take care of themselves, honestly. You know, mm. they could just dish it back as well. And I was very appreciative of the principals and the teachers calling me. And uh, my, I asked my daughters, and they says, no, mom, we can handle it. 
So, you know, they were they grew up in the same town, so they knew these kids. So after a while, it all kind of, you know, went away. We noticed, you know, a lot of uh, problems uh, out in the, you know, store sometimes. Somebody's staring at you. Somebody will maybe say a side comment passing by you. But where I do live, uh, and I've lived here for all these years, um, it's a small town in Ohio. Um, none of my people, I mean, it's a tiny town. Um, so I still wore the same clothing, everything, and the girls were going to school. Um, so personal experience has been fine, except when you're out and about, very limited for a very short time. Uh, but then it has kind of, um, I think people see now both sides, even though it was, you know, for a while, it was a very big shock. Um, but I think after a lot of TV programs, a lot of education, people now see both sides of the story. And I feel they are more unbiased than they used to be. It used to be totally one-sided. Mm-hmm. They had no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my neighbors, they know you're a Muslim, but they have no clue who a Muslim is, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but since they knew me, that's the only Muslim they knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband is a physician in town, so, you know, they knew my girls, they knew me. So they had a good experience. But it's all about if people meet somebody um, in a positive way, I, I, that's what my hope is. It's not that they are robbed by somebody who's named a Muslim or something. If you ever had a good experience, then personally, then it it was absolutely fine. It's not like his patient stopped coming or anything. No, mm-hmm. it was absolutely okay for us. So I think rural America, different than maybe urban America, um, people are back, and it's the personal, you know, personal interaction. Mm-hmm. I went to the school system, I was in PTA, I talked to people. So the only, I'm the only Muslim in town. And I can honestly say there was not, no, um, there was no reaction even after 9-11. And now it's just like they take it in stride. They know the woman going on the street with her head covering is me, you know. Right. So it's, it's been fine. That's, that, that's really um, nice to hear. That, that your experience um, has has been uh, very positive in in, in this regard. Um, now you you're a professional and you've also been through the um, academic part of life in in the USA. What has your um, sort of your your experience been there? Like um, how how's that been for you in the academic as well as in your professional life? Mm, again, my experience maybe not the same as many others. I have a sister-in-law who moved again. This is um, the northeast part of Ohio. If mm-hmm. you go further towards the south and all that, it's what you call the redneck area. She moved her husband, and they moved also from New York after finishing residency, and they settled in another area. Uh, her experience was much different than mine, even though it was, again, a smaller town. Uh, she was yelled at in a restaurant that go back to your country and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's where you live. Uh, in my town, uh, I think when we moved here, uh, 90% of the physicians were from different countries, from Argentina, from India, from Korea, from Philippines. So people of our town kind of, I think, grew up sort of knowing all these different nationalities, and they just took it in stride. 
the difference is that all of them were Christian and they went to their local churches. So they were assimilated much easier than me, who never went to a church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did stand out in that sense. But if you start interacting one-on-one, um, so it was the same. When, and I, like I said, I went to take classes in vocational schools. I was raising three kids. I had company all the time. So there was uh, rarely any time to go to a professional school or do, you know, um, the education as far as uh, uh, your uh, finishing your studies. So I took up different hobbies, and I would take classes on history and, uh, you know, non-grade um, classes that you would just enjoy, enjoy the company of the people there. Um, and uh, the school is uh, in this area, vocational school. They give all sorts of classes. Uh, so I will take different classes, and I would sometimes take an Indian friend with me, both take classes. Um, so both of us are very different, you know, uh, in our appearance and everything. Uh, but we, again, I said this part of Ohio uh, probably has more exposure to international, you know, people who have. And this uh, city I live in, a lot of Italian, Polish people who have settled here. So I think they are more um, in that mindset that people come and people move. Um, so I personally, even in the, uh, when I would go and then, like I said, the teachers would ask me when they would be uh, teaching South Asia, very few people knew about mm-hmm. what India, Pakistan, Bangladesh is. Right. And I would hear the funniest question about do you even <laughs> have cars or microwaves or whatnot, you know. <laughs> okay. Do you travel on uh, elephants? And my kids used to just like roll their eyes. <laughs> so I said, they said, would you, you know, explain it first to me? So I would go and this is middle school. Right. So this is sixth grade onwards. Uh, when kids are really curious and then can be very, you know, snarky. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. But it was always in a positive way because by now everybody knew my husband in town. He's the only, you know, orthopedic surgeon. So all, most of the kids in the high school were his patients, you know, the, the athletes and so on. Mm. I was known, you know, my girls were all in school. So I think I maybe had it easier because of the way we were living here. Um, but. I have family in New York. I have family in other parts in Maryland, Virginia. And yes, some of them have had uh, challenges. Um, but since I'm talking just personally about myself, I can honestly say uh, to this day, and I hope it stays the same, I have never had to deal with um, anything that I can say was, uh, you know, um, something that would have upset me mm-hmm. Um so I have been one of those lucky um, people that have, uh, you know, done it. And now I know a lot of girls who wear hijab in schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, my girls did not wear hijab, you know, and they wanted to be simply in the same societies. And I never forced them. And since I started wearing it of my own accord, that was how we were taught. Even my mother never forced me. Mm-hmm. When I'm ready, then I started wearing it. So I have left it up to my girls the same way. When you're ready, you will do it, you know. So we pretty much blended in. Um, though their clothing was many times, shalwar kameez, we would take them to Juma, uh, and we'll pick them up from school. Yeah. And that was the day they would wear shalwar kameez to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, so it was all kind of nice. Uh, and they tell me the same thing, you know. They say we had a good... 
comfortable upbringing here. Uh, they dealt with some small, which others there, you know, some kids with all this tease you. But most of them were pretty nice, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really uh, great. And I mean, you're you, you very blessed, really, um, I'd say that um, you, yeah. you, you've had it easier in, in this regard. And, 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 and as you mentioned, that obviously different areas uh, bring different stories, obviously, and, and, and perspectives. Um, uh, one last thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to ask you is uh, if you could convey a message to the rest of the world about what it is like uh, for you to be modest, what would that be? Um, my experience is you always... Um, you know, if you are true to yourself, this is what you believe. So it's coming from out of you that this is the way I am. And this is, you know, you have actually, we are all born into a religion, but then it's our choice to adopt it, to study it. Mm-hmm. When I came here as a teenager, honestly, I was a Muslim. I was a born Muslim. I just knew the bare minimum. Uh, but then when people start asking, we start studying it you know, and start exploring it. Then comes the conviction, and then it comes, this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So when you have that conviction in you, in any religion, when you're true to yourself, through your own conviction, and not through societal pressure or parents' pressure or somebody else, I think you're able to do anything, because you take it in stride, you will have some opposition, sometimes, somewhere. And like I said, I have seen it become easier and easier to wear, to be modest now. You have entire lines of modest clothing in the department stores now. Mm-hmm. I could not use, I could not even find a scarf 40 years back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's the biggest trend. You know, everybody is wearing a scarf. Mm-hmm. I, when I will find it, I'll just grab it, you know. Uh, so for me personally and for everybody who, who truly is a believer, and, and that's what it is. I think your heart, and your soul is the same. You know, you are you are um, physically what you feel emotionally. You're reflecting that. So if you have that, and you're wearing hijab and modestly doing it's modesty, of course. So I don't necessarily say that you have to cover your head and wear a hijab a certain way. The girls, my daughters. I think they wear hijab in their own ways. Like they will be all discovered. Hmm. They cannot imagine, you know, showing, um, wearing skirts or going to the beach in bikinis or whatever. These girls do it their way. They hmm. wear the absolutely no makeup when they're out and about in public, you hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So that is also doing modestly in this era of extreme social pressures yeah. and, you know, looking a certain way. Yes. So our young girls, our young uh, ladies out there, the gentlemen as well, you know, the tattoos are everywhere. So you have to explain to them everything in the right way. Mm-hmm. And then they have to make that decision. But I feel modesty in this day and age, uh, in the Western society, is not as easy as it used to be for us because in the olden days, honestly, here women wore fantastic clothing, long fur, beautifully tailored clothing, and they looked elegant and everything. Now it's very different. You see the shortest shorts, you wear, you know, the smallest tops and everything. So we have to, you know, teach our children modesty, not necessarily just covering up the head. Mm-hmm. And if you start that very young, for 
mothers. And I told that to my daughter, who has kids of her own now. So you start at very young age, four or five, where the girls should start wearing a certain way. Uh, you know, so then it's, they say it to me that it's ingrained in us. We cannot imagine exposing our legs because we never did it since childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my message, I mean, just stay with modesty. It's not a difficult thing to do at all. But you have to teach it the right way. Don't force it. Show it by example. You know, take mm-hmm. your children everywhere. Let them be involved. My daughter was in, she, in those days, she used to wear leggings because shorts have to be shorts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And she used to stand out like a sore thumb. Now mm-hmm. I see that, you know, we have Olympians now who wear hijab. So things have changed. Yeah. And girls have role models now that they can look up to. Um, that are in hijab. And uh, so do it so that it comes from the inside. That has always been my thing. It has to come from inside. Otherwise, everybody will rebel at some stage or another if it's forced on them. So um, like anything else, you know, whether it's uh, uh, a lifestyle or an education, you just encourage them. And I find it uh, fairly easy, I mean, to observe modesty. Um, and uh, anyway, at my age, it's not a big deal anyway. Uh, but my daughters are there, and I have granddaughters who are teenagers now. So it's 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 to them. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy task because the mm-hmm. social media is just crazy these days. So alhamdulillah, little by little, we make progress, and you keep praying a lot. Pray a lot. Pray a lot. It's human endeavor is only up to a certain point. Absolutely. Then it's. In my opinion, it's the prayers and the sadhkas that make the difference in whatever you do in life. So be out there in the society, do charitable work, be, you know, that's what I try to do with mm-hmm, my women's mm-hmm. amazing, amazing. and all that. We um, are out and we try to do um, as much charity. Jazakallah. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Jazakallah. Um, it, it, it was really amazing and inspiring really to, to speak with you. And Jazakallah. 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 So we are now um, heading towards um, the end of this hour. We will keep talking about this topic a little further um, after the news break. Really wonderful discussion that we just had um, with our second guest call. And then the message really is that be confident and believe in Allah the Almighty and everything uh, will find its course. And here are the five o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all and welcome to the um, Drive Time show. You're joined by myself, Salman, and uh, we've been together since 4 p.m. today as we discussed the first topic, um, which was in regards to the hijab and um, specifically whether the hijab is something that is holding back um, the ladies and women that are observing the hijab, or is it something maybe? That is the opposite, and is really supporting them, and 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 is a is a sense of security and a safety that it is giving them. And we spoke to two um, guest callers, both from the USA today, and they give us great insight about um, their experience 
Um, one was a student, a second year undergrad, and the other was um, a a Lajna, a lady that had moved to the USA in the 70s and now has daughters as well as granddaughters. And she obviously had invaluable um, experience that she shared with us. If I was to summarize what we heard from these ladies today is really that the hijab is the way to go. It will not be hadu. Yes, there will be issues on the way. Um, there will be people that are maybe not as understanding, people that are misinformed. Um, especially with um, the rise of, of media and, and now with social media, there is a lot of misinformation out there, but there is also a lot of um, legit information which is uh, making it easier for people to understand and accept this part of society, whereas maybe 40, 50 years ago or maybe immediately after the 9-11 incident, things were very different and now it has become more acceptable and common within society. The Promised Messiah, uh, may, the peace, uh, may peace be upon him, states, The Book of God does not aim at keeping women in seclusion like prisoners. So you see, one of the um, allegations that, that, that is made against Islam and the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that women are oppressed. But here we are told that the Book of God does not aim at keeping women in seclusion like prisoners. The purpose of these regulations is to restrain men and women from letting, from letting their eyes to rove freely and from displaying their good looks and beauties. For therein lies the good, of, uh, good both of men and of women. And he further states, if we place soft bread before a hungry dog, it would be vain to hope that the dog should pay no attention to it. Thus, God Almighty desired that human faculties should not be provided with any occasion for secret functioning and should not be confronted with anything that might incite dangerous tendencies. This is the philosophy that underlies the Islamic regulations relating to the observance of the veil. So this is how the Promised Messiah, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, has summarized the injunction of the hijab. So in, in uh, conclusion, in all aspects of life, spirituality, intellect, education, and really endless others, Islam gives women their due rights, creating pathways for them to achieve their goals. Islam does not restrict, uh, restrict women on any regard and rather helps them be successful, safe and prosperous. Now it is really up to society whether they can change their viewpoints or not, whether they can change. And I mean, we, we in, in, in today's day and age where society is really sort of willing to accept anything that comes their way, why not the hijab? So the people that are against the hijab, the people that are criticizing the hijab, maybe need to read more, understand more, and maybe need to get into uh, conversations with, 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 with such women that have taken up the hijab. Whether these women are oppressed or not, we can really find out from them.
So that was it um, for the topic of hijab. And I think we've really established that it is not holding back anyone. Rather, it is helping them progress in life and really helping them to be the way that those women want to be. Um, the second topic we have uh, here today for our listeners is serving humanity. Um, and that is a form of worship of Allah as instructed within the Islamic teaching. So we will discuss this, this, this topic after this very um, short break. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet wasallam was a true man of peace. Writings of the Promised Messiah When a hot-tempered person is provoked and punishes a child, he takes on the role of an enemy in the stress of his anger and imposes punishment far in excess of the wrong which has been done. An individual with self-respect and control over himself, who is also forbearing and dignified, has the right to correct a child to a certain extent as the occasion demands or seek to guide the child. But a wrathful and hot-headed person who is easily provoked is not fit to be a guardian of children. I wish that instead of punishing children, parents would have recourse to prayer and should make it a habit to supplicate earnestly for their children, for the supplications of parents on behalf of their children meet with special acceptance. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam, with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all and welcome back um, after this very short break. Before the break, um, we mentioned that we are now going to be discussing our next topic which is serving humanity, a form of worship of Allah. Now, serving humanity is the fundamental teaching of Islam, the very first chapter of the Holy Quran states that all praise belongs to Allah, Lord of all mankind. As Allah the Almighty is the Lord of all mankind, He instructs human beings to be good to everyone and um, serve all mankind without any um, discrimination. Islam teaches us to be, uh, to um, us to I mean, best serve mankind through the teachings 
of the Holy Quran and the example of the Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In the Holy Quran, chapter 3, verse 111, God Almighty states, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. So this is the injunction of the Holy Quran. This explains why the human beings were created. And that is very simple. For the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, practiced the teachings of the Holy Quran to the fullest extent. And it is the best example of the true representation of service to mankind and to Allah. He was sent as a mercy for the entire universe, for all peoples. This is mentioned in the Holy Quran, chapter 21. The Holy Prophet uh, showed love, he showed sympathy and kindness towards all. He said, one who is not grateful to mankind is not grateful to Allah. So, in essence, if we want to have a strong connection with Allah the Almighty, if we want to attain the nearness of Allah the Almighty, if we want to be loved by Allah the Almighty, then we have to be serving the mankind. If we look at a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he mentions that if a human being repents and wants to find the path towards Allah the Almighty, it makes him happier than a mother that had lost her child in the desert and then found it again. So if Allah the Almighty loves its creation so much, how much love would he give to someone that serves his creation? So if we want to attain the nearness of Allah the Almighty from an Islamic perspective, from a spiritual perspective, it is our utmost duty to serve humanity the promised messiah Ahmed, um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya muslim community states that sympathy for all mankind is a moral obligation and a duty that religion is no religion which does not inculcate sympathy nor does that man deserve to be called a man who does no uh, who does no sympathy uh, who has no sympathy in him. He also said the teachings of the Quran can be divided into two major categories. The first being unity of God, love and obedience to him. The second is to treat your brothers and fellow beings kindly. Be kind and merciful to humanity. Always work for the good of mankind. So, I mean, this is really astonishing when we see how much emphasis Islam has laid on uh, the service of hu humanity and uh, we also see this um, uh, very commonly that it is uh, Muslims that whenever they are approached 
to to give towards charity, um, especially during the month of Ramadan and and and, and other such um, um, holy um, events and times during the year. That there is a lot, a lot of charity that is being made during such times, and that really shows. Um, how much impact this teaching of the Holy Quran and the Prophet ﷺ, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has had on Muslims, and really is something which is 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 a, is a sort of inborn faculty now within every Muslim, and because we as Muslims also believe that if we give towards charity, it will it will help us get rid of our, of our sins and also get rid of potential hardships that may be coming our way or hardships that we are dealing with already or maybe problems and sins we've had in the past. So this is what service to humanity does. This is what charity does. This is what charitable work for uh, the creation of Allah does. So let's look at some of the ways how we can serve humanity. Inviting people to the path of Allah the Almighty and praying for them is, is for example, is, is, is one way. Um, it says in the Holy Quran, um, call unto the way of thy Lord with wisdom and goodly exhortation and argue with them in a way what is best. Second, um, way of serving humanity would be providing help um, to those suffering and uh, the, the, the people that are distressed. And that is something um, which is being done here in the UK by the British Red Cross and this is why we are going to be discussing this in more detail with our first guest caller for today which is Luke Tredgett who is the head of uh, emergencies at British Red Cross. Luke, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, can you tell us um, and our listeners about your role at the British Red Cross? Yes, absolutely. So I'm the head of emergencies at the British Red Cross. And what that means is that I help organise the British contribution to big international uh, crisis response operations. Um, we're fortunate at the British Red Cross to be part of a global movement, and there's 191 other Red Cross and Red Crescent organizations in different countries, almost every country in the world. And when there is a big emergency in, what, in one of those um, countries and our partner organization needs support, the international uh, Red Cross organizes us to um, contribute what we can and I help organize and contribute the British Red Cross contribution to that and that's normally um, our people, our experts that we can send to help organize a response operation and ensure that aid gets to the people that need it. Sometimes it is actually sending the, uh, the physical items themselves and often in, in, it's sending money and money that's been um, given to us by our many generous supporters here in the UK. Mm -hmm. that, that, that is um, really um, 
inspiring, really, I must say. So what inspired you to dedicate yourself to the service of humanity? Well, I think that um, at the start of my career, I was interested in working for an organization that that does good, that strives to have a positive impact in the world. Um, you know, I was studying at university at a time when there was lots of global upheaval with um, with uh, wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and and different situations happening. I think it was the, the 2004 Asian tsunami which mm-hmm. affected lots of countries. I remember that was the first time that I actually contacted uh, charities seeing if, um, if there was any way I could help. Um, and I was told at that time that actually... You know, when it when it comes to um, to aid responses, normally it's um, um, normally it's organisations in those countries that can do most of the work, but that it's it's really just you know the few experts that are needed to be to be sent. But it was it was way back then I was I was inspired to try and um, be involved in organisations like that. But really, it wasn't until I joined the the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement that I think I I made the decision to commit my career to this. And the most inspiring thing is the, the solidarity between different components of the global network. So I've worked in Pakistan and uh, Sierra Leone and many different African uh, countries and the Philippines. And as I was saying, we have the Red Cross and Red Crescent in, in those different countries. And you have an immediate solidarity and understanding with, um, with colleagues and, and volunteers that you meet in those places. And it's a really satisfying and rewarding um, area to work in when you can meet and work with these people and, and immediately know that they, they're trying to achieve the same things as you and have the same values. So that's what led me down this path and I've been working um, for the Red Cross for 15 years now. Wow, that's that's really amazing. Um, would you mind sharing with, with our listeners what is it that, that you, you were doing before um, you dedicated your, your, your life to this? Well, actually, um, it wasn't long after I graduated that I had my first uh, role in the in the Red Cross. But um, I also did other work for uh, charities closer to home, for uh, for a homelessness charity, um, and for a campaigning organisation. Mm-hmm. But um, it wasn't so long after starting my career that I was fortunate in finding an opportunity at the, at the at the Red Cross and even more fortunate to have those opportunities to go and work overseas. Um, so actually it's been the, the vast majority of my career has been in this line of work. Right. So can you maybe share a particular moment or experience with us that reaffirmed your dedication to this course? Yeah, absolutely, and it actually links with um, some of the things you were saying before I came online, mm-hmm. and um, it's really about the generosity of our supporters, and when I have that connection with what motivates them to contribute uh, money or, or some time to, to what we do. Um, I remember when I was um, I was deployed to the Philippines when there was the 2013 uh, Typhoon Haiyan, which at the time was the biggest storm on record, and it was a, a terrible disaster and killed 6,000 people and made hundreds of thousands of people homeless. And um, as I was being deployed, someone that I knew, quite a close 
um, family member told me that they'd given a hundred pounds to to our appeal, mm-hmm. which um, which I knew they weren't in a in a great place to uh, to give that mm-hmm. in their, in their mm-hmm. personal situation. And I was I was just really moved and humbled that they'd made that that personal contribution, and it's something that that I kept in mind all through that deployment when I was there in the Philippines. Whenever I um, you know was feeling tired or was feeling you know, maybe I wanted to, um, you know, if I if I ever lost any sort of energy, then it was, it was thinking about that person's uh, contribution and, and wanting to actually ensure that the the money that they gave and that all our other donors give is um, is spent in in the way it should, and that we really do make a difference for for people in crisis. And I'm fortunate that reminders like that happen quite often. Like you, you do receive letters from members of the public. Um, giving thanks or, you know, expressing their hope that you can make a difference. And, you know, it's that connection with that very human and um, very deep feeling that people have to want to make a difference to others that are experiencing crisis that, that keeps me motivated, that keeps me inspired to, to carry on doing this work. Absolutely. Um, how, how has your perspective on life and, and and your perspective on, on the world really changed as a result of your work? Um, well, I actually think it's um, it's probably the other way around. I feel like it's my life and how I've experienced different things in life that, that has made me um, feel differently about the work or has given me additional empathy and understanding of, of the many different crises that people go through, you know, going through life when you experience hardships or, you know, family members that become sick or um, any, any personal troubles that you go through or positive things like becoming a parent and, and you know, I, I have a young um, family. So I think it's actually when you have a more broad experience of life and you go through the ups and downs that it really, you know, allows you that, that, that great uh, depth of empathy with others when they're experiencing hardship and crisis. So, you know, I think um, doing this work has, has given me an, an extra dimension of, of understanding of people in, experiencing crisis in different parts of the world, but even more so, you know, my, my, own, um, my own experiences in life, I think, give me a greater understanding and sympathy for, you know, the many different ways that people can can endure um, hardship. Absolutely. Um, Luke, it, it was really, really um, inspirational, really, to, to speak with you. And I wish you all the very best um, in, in, in your future endeavours. Thank you very much for, for, for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. 0208-687-7878 is uh, the number to call us. And you can also... Find us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK, that is Voice of Islam UK. So we were just um, speaking with Luke, who is head of uh, emergencies at British Red Cross. What an inspirational journey he has had. And I mean, really something um, that can be inspiring for so many of us. So anyone that is looking to to get into such service, to dedicate his or her life towards uh, such causes, um, it is really something, uh, or uh, the the way Luke has basically done it, I mean, this is something 
many of us could take upon and really change not just um, others' lives but also our own in in many ways. Um, now, serving humanity is a form of worship of Allah the Almighty, as it is the, the, the topic of our discussion today. The uh, worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, in his address at the inauguration of Nasir Mosque, um, which is in Gillingham in the Kent area, said it is only possible to form a close bond with God Almighty and to please him when we become those who please and love his creation. The Quran very clearly and repeatedly informs us that the objective and purpose of our creation is to worship Allah the Almighty. Where the worship of God has indeed been deemed a fundamental objective, it has also been clarified how such worship should be performed. He further states, I, uh, and indeed every true Muslim, have been clearly commanded that merely physically prostrating or bowing and crossing our arms or repeating certain prescribed prayers do not fulfill the true objectives of worship. Rather, the purpose of worship can only be fulfilled when a person comes to follow and act upon all of God's commands. And God's commands entail fulfilling the rights of both God and also of his creation. In, ter in terms of God's creation, Islam does not teach us to, to fulfill only the rights of humans, but rather it teaches that every form of creation, including animals and birds, must be treated with love, mercy and compassion. The truth is that Allah has directly intertwined and interwoven the rights due to him with the rights due to mankind. He further states, This is why when we study the details of how to worship in the Quran, we find that Allah the Almighty has said that a person's prayers offered in a mosque and which he, ties, which he tries to perform with respect and due etiquette will not be of any value and will not be accepted if alongside such worship he or she is not fulfilling the rights of mankind. A person's prayers will not be accepted if they do not seek to help the poor and deprived. A person's prayer will not be accepted if they are not fulfilling the rights of orphans. A person's prayer will not be accepted if they are not striving to end all forms of slavery. And a person's prayers will not be accepted if they do not show mercy to the one to one another and indeed to all forms of God's creation. So this is what the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community had to say in this regard. And that really summarizes that within Islam, within the teachings of the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Physical actions, physically uh, prostrating before Allah the Almighty and, and praying five times a day is not going to help one if we are not um, paying the due rights, giving the due rights to those around us. 
if a person in 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 my close vicinity someone who, who's who's my neighbor or someone who lives in the area is struggling financially and i am spending loads and loads of 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 money on myself and 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 i'm buying myself maybe the the latest um phone or a watch or the latest cars or a property this goes directly against the teachings of islam there is um this um incident that is mentioned in islamic literature and it speaks about a man who had gathered um some money and uh, he wanted to spend that towards his pilgrimage towards his hajj which we all know is um one of the five pillars of islam and is a great great honor and prestige for any muslim that can do that so he wanted to perform his pilgrimage and this is why he was gathering some wealth some money but then he found out that one of his neighbors was struggling financially i'm not going into the, the details of the incident but what happened is that he then spent that money on on his neighbors so that they had enough and halal food to eat so later they found out that his pilgrimage was actually accepted by Allah the Almighty because it is not the actual um, act of doing something but really the intentions that we have behind it. Maybe there are some people performing the pilgrimage but their intentions are bad. So how can that be accepted? The very first hadith in um, Al-Bukhari which is a collection of the sayings of the Prophet ﷺ mentions in Namala Amalu bin Niyad that um, deeds are judged upon intentions. So when we have the right intention behind something, only then are our deeds accepted in the eyes of Allah the Almighty. The promised Messiah ﷺ, may peace be upon him, writes in his book, The Essence of Islam, that the service of one's fellow beings means to strive for their benefit purely for the sake of for, for the sake of God in all their needs and in all the relationships relationships of mutual dependence which God has established out of true and selfless uh, sympathy for them all in need of help should be helped out of one's God-given capacity and one must do his best for their betterment both in this world and in the hereafter. The purpose of my teaching is believe in God as one without associate and have sympathy with God's creatures and be of good conduct and think no ill. Be such that no disorderliness or mischief should approach your heart. Utter no falsehood, invent no lies, and cause no hurt to anyone, whether by your tongue or your hands. The promised Messiah then uh, states at another place that my state is such that if someone is in distress, whilst I am engaged in the obligatory prayers and I hear their grief it is my ardent desire to break the prayer 
and to try to help that person and to shower them with as much love as possible. He further said, to fail to help a brother in the time of need or difficulty is utterly immoral and wrong. Furthermore, if a person did not have the material means to help someone struggling or facing difficulties, they should, at the very least, fervently pray that Allah the Almighty remove their problems. He taught that sincere prayer required a soft and pure heart, and so Muslims had a duty to be sympathetic to the plight of others and to consider their trials as though they were their own. So, I mean, it is really being emphasized and, and reiterated that this is what a Muslim should be doing, is always looking after those in need. Um, we will be going on a very short break. Please stay with us and join us um, immediately after this short break. Al-Bari is a word that emulates the whole of the creation of the universe. Allah calls Himself Al-Bari, the originator, the maker, the evolver, on three occasions in the Holy Qur'an. He is the one who creates from out of nothing. He is not merely the first cause, He is the creator the maker, the fashioner. And it is he who exercises control over the universe at all times. Al-Bari creates with no model or similarity and evolves that which is in perfect proportion and harmony without any fault. God is the supreme being who exists independently of everything else. He is the sole creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. No event occurs in the universe without God's knowledge and explicit consent. He is the ultimate source of every action and happening, animate or inanimate. God has not only created the galaxies and stars, but also the life forms of this earth. He is the nourisher and sustainer of all creation. He is their Lord. The holy attribute of Allah, Al-Bari, captures the creation of the whole of the universe. The quality of creating the universe out of nothingness and then perpetuating it into existence. This wonderful attribute aligns perfectly with the current scientific view about the creation of the universe from the Big Bang and its continuous expansion. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV, may Allah be pleased with him, shed light on this concept in his book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth, detailing how the Holy Quran 
is the only divine scripture to speak about the continuous expansion of the universe. He states, It should be remembered that the concept of the continuous expansion of the universe is exclusive to the Qur'an. No other divine scriptures even remotely hint at it. The discovery that the universe is constantly expanding is of prime significance to scientists because it helps create a better understanding of how the universe was initially created. It clearly explains the stage-by-stage -stage process of creation in a manner which perfectly falls into step with the theory of the Big Bang. The Qur'an goes further and describes the entire cycle of the beginning, the end, and the return again to a similar beginning. Highlighting the unique qualities of Allah, it is all the more important to ponder over this attribute while remembering Allah in order to attain His nearness and favor. This divine attribute, Al-Bari, depicts a wonderful view of the creation of the universe that continues to astound the modern man. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him, high moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father. Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected 
in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome back. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. And uh, as we just heard, that the Prophet went through many, many hardships within his life, but he never gave up, gave up on his service to humanity. And that is something that, that is expected of all um, Muslims and of in every expected of everyone that believes in Allah the Almighty and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Now, one um, of the examples that um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has set in this regard is Humanity First. Um, humanity First is really um, serving humanity across the globe from from South Asia to South America to Africa as well as Europe and one of the most recent um, ones is, is is Turkey where the earthquake had hit so Humanity First is trying to work in this regard to serve humanity and really create a a better place for people to live in now, some of the other things <clears throat> the MDM Muslim community is doing is, for example, is uh, the the building of schools and hospitals. Um, again, they are trying and doing this across the globe, especially um, when we look at some of the African countries. We see there are many schools, and uh, not just that, but there are um, people in in higher positions. Um, directors and, and, and ministers who have actually studied at one of our MDR schools and they are very, very thankful towards the community for, for doing such service. So building of wells and, and schools and, and hospitals, as we all know, schools and hospitals are essential and are really basic, basic necessities of any society. Unfortunately, many of our fellow human beings are deprived of these basic necessities. We, those living in the West, in the UK, in Europe, in um, North America, etc., we have it very easy. We are living life um, very easily. We have access to everything we need. We wake up in the morning and we and we get breakfast. Um, we, we're not worried about where the breakfast is um, is, is going to come uh, from or where we're going to have lunch 
or whether we have enough clothing for all weathers, um, whether we have roof of our, over our head. Um, I mean, there are so many things that we take as granted. Whereas this may not be um, very common or very accessible to many, many millions of our fellow brethren across the globe. So it is an, a, a duty and, and really um, an utmost priority for every Muslim to think about that, to think about how we can help others, to think about how we can relieve others of, of their hardships. How do we, um, how are we able to serve others? And then on the Day of Judgment, when we are asked this question, whether we fulfilled the rights of our fellow human beings, are we all going to be able to um, answer this question? Are we all going to be confident with what, with what we have performed in this very short life that we have? I mean, let's be honest, every one of us... Um, the average uh, lifespan, what is it, something between 75 or 80, 85 years? So we don't have much time. But we have enough time to take out some of it in service of humanity. And Allah the Almighty has given such faculties to each one of us to find a way to serve mankind whether it is through through uh, charity whether it is to physically go somewhere whether it is to uh, through 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 um, education whether it, it is through building bridges building schools and I mean building bridges b between communities there is always something one can do to help the community and to help humanity across the globe. So in this, uh, today's show, we discussed what the worship and prayers of a person, um, that, that the, these prayers are not accepted if he or she is not willing to fulfill the rights of mankind. Hence why the service of humanity is a fundamental aspect of the worship of God Almighty and is given great importance in Islam. In order to serve humanity, we must adopt the fundamental qualities of love for humanity, kindness in our hearts for others, humility, compassion and desire to share our knowledge with others, charitable disposition and a constant desire to strive in the cause of Allah. The promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, said that all the creation of God with... Uh, sorry, he said that treat all the creation of God, with such deep love as though they are your close family members. Treat mankind in the same way that a mother treats her child. This is the way you should be and not that you help someone only so that you can attain benefit later or take a favor in return. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, our shows today were uh, the, both these sessions were produced by Nadia Anwar 
and Maria Ahmed Tuba. So thank you very much to our producers. We did ask you uh, a question on our socials, which is um, the hijab is. So it was a sort of a fill in the blank. So the hijab is what to you? And um, the answers were the hijab is my identity. The hijab is a part of my life. The hijab is best covering for a woman. And someone said that the hijab is a protection from all the evil in the world. So that brings us to the end um, of our two-hour Voice of Islam um, episode. Today we discussed with you the hijab, the importance of it, and in summary really that the hijab is something that provides uh, a, a confident identity to someone who's covering up and that the world is going more and more towards acceptance, whereas there always will be someone um, not educated enough or just not compassionate enough or not accepting enough to understand um, its importance. Um, in the second hour, then, we discussed um, serving humanity and that in Islam, serving humanity is a form of worship of Allah. So. All Muslims, um, whether they are rich or they are poor, whether they are young or they are old, all of them are instructed, are taught that they should be serving humanity. And as we said, we all have the opportunity to do so. We, Everyone has their own way of doing it. Allah the Almighty has given everyone their own faculties. But eventually everyone can find a way of serving humanity, serving those around us, serving those within society, serving those that are not close to us, but they need our help. Um, that was it for today. Um, thank you much for being with us. Once again, thank you to our producers, to our team behind the scenes, to our tech team. And we hope that we will have our listeners back tomorrow again from 4 to 6. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.